0: let's say you have this amazing idea and you want to start a business, but you don't have any of your own money.
1: What are your options? It's difficult. Like I I can't lie and say, oh yeah, you can just go out and raise money. My suggestion would be to build a community without a product necessarily yet, because what investors are looking for is some sort of signal that you have traction that gives a signal to investors that they're not just betting on an idea. There's some sort of you know, metric or data that they can hold on to to show like, okay, yeah, once you have your product, you actually have people to sell to that you own.
0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bougie Best Friend Podcast. Today's episode is going to be an absolute treat for my entrepreneur startup business queens. Okay, I had the pleasure of interviewing Maggie Sellers. I came across Maggie's TikToks a few months ago. I'm not sure when because I've been binging her ever since. I don't know if you know this about me. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I'm dabbling into something entrepreneurial myself. And I was just trying to learn more about the industry that at this point just seems so male dominated and daunting. And whenever you're trying to find answers to some of your questions, maybe you're going to even get more confused when you're trying to get an answer to the question because guys just like to mansplain things sometimes. So I invited her on my podcast to kind of explain the whole process of starting a company, raising money, maybe selling your company, hiring people. It was a very interesting conversation overall. And don't be afraid to put a pause and rewind and hear something again, because she's such a wealth of knowledge and I, myself, I'm going to re-listen to this episode multiple times because I feel like I can just learn so much from her. She is the founder and CEO of Creative Mess, which is a startup accelerator that invests in, consults, and creates early-stage consumer brands and services. Without further ado, let's jump into the episode.
1: Maggie Sellers, welcome to Bougie Best Friend Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I will tell a little tale of how I came across your page. I am dabbling into the startup, uh, first-time founder world, and I was looking through a lot of content, and I came across you, and I was like, okay, finally somebody who kind of looks like me, who kind of like, I feel like it's the similar vibe and it's speaking the investor fundraising world, but like in a very simplified language. So I was like,
1: thank God I found somebody like you. (laughs) That makes me so happy. No, I think that's what I've heard time and time again is it's such an intimidating industry. It reminds me a lot of art. And I remember when I was first getting into both worlds, I just felt like an outsider and there was nobody that looked like me or sounded like me. And now that I'm in it, I try not to change who I am as a person because I want to encourage the next generation that looks like me that you don't have to change who you are to be in this world. Um, but it still is, you know, finding that that balance of being myself and then also showing people I actually know what I'm talking about. So I'm glad that's the story of how you found me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to agree that when you are a woman in the not even the startup world in business in general, I feel like we're always judged based on our appearance. Like if you look too pretty, you're probably dumb. If you don't dress up at all, it's like, why can't she be a presentable? So it's always like, a struggle but i would love to learn more about you give me a little background where did you grow up what did you go to school for your yeah. story
1: yeah so i'm actually from toronto canada and i never thought i wanted to leave canada i went to business school for my undergrad at western university and my major was consumer behavior which was essentially just studying why people purchase why people buy you know marketing tactics Um, I actually wasn't the best at my I had to take finance and accounting, but those were not my best classes by any means. And it's funny looking back now that I straddle this world of creative and analytical and finance that the school system looking back is very broken in my opinion because I had it in my head that like I wasn't good at finance or I wasn't good at math. And now that's a big part of what I spend my day doing. So after school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I went and got big tech experience. I worked at Salesforce for three years in business development. I then didn't end up getting promoted internally to be on the marketing team, which is what I really wanted. And I went to my first startup called Freshy which is a fast casual restaurant. We had about 200 locations when I joined. I sat in a marketing analytics role. So using a very analytical part of my brain, studying data, and then ended up um, heading up special projects right before we went um, public actually. So I got the experience of translating a company from privately held to publicly held very early on. And I would say at this point, I kind of became addicted to this idea of like growing startups. I knew the next one I wanted to go to, I wanted it to be even earlier. So the next startup I went to, I um, helped actually launch the federal market in Canada and then moved out to LA, um, was the head of brand and underneath our CMO, who's amazing, um and really saw like the firsthand experience of growing a brand uh across all the different departments, of being super cross-functional in this in this role. Um ended up meeting somebody who worked in entertainment after about three years at that startup, I realized I wanted to change and I ended up going on to the management team um, in a brand advisory brand consulting role for like Post Malone, the Black Eyed Peas, 24K Golden, Ian Dior. And this is really where I was able to combine my love of early stage startups and brands with creators and entertainment. I started doing you know, brand partnerships and then at this time was kind of doing equity transactions between our celebrities and with startups to help them grow. This was really before everybody became obsessed with the idea of having celebrities as founders or on your cap table as an investor. Um, so it was super new. I was kind of figuring it out as I went. I personally started angel investing at this time, you know, writing super small checks into like when I mean super small checks, super small checks, like twenty five hundred dollars into startups and became really clear with where I wanted to take my career, which was this um, convergence of culture, capital and community. And so I ended up leaving and um, actually trying to launch a concept very similar to what a lot of people in the finance world know of as Touchdown Ventures. They white label corporate VC for the biggest Fortune 50 companies in the world, including IMAX and Kellogg's. And so I actually started um, a corporate venture capital white arm label for the entertainment industry. And my first client um was 10K Projects. I invested off their balance sheet with my partners and we would have the same kind of economics where we take a 20% carry. Um, and we were really kind of at the first time like deploying capital, finding startups we wanted to, to invest into. And um, although corporate VC isn't necessarily where I play today, it was definitely the beginning stages of really identifying, like I said, being at that intersection of those three pillars, which are very personal to me and where I see the future of of the creator economy and and startup. So it's been a crazy journey. But yeah, I'll pause there. I don't know if you want me to get into what I'm doing now. But that's the background.
0: Super impressive. Okay, I have a lot of questions for you that are very basic. Because even most of the things that you were saying, I'm like, wait, is this what I think it is? Or I'm not really sure. A few years ago, people started glorifying the entrepreneur world, startup world. Five years ago, everybody wanted to be a lawyer, everybody wanted to be a doctor, but now everybody wants to have their own company, they want to have their own startup. So can you explain, very simple terms, what is a startup? What would define a startup?
1: A startup is a very early stage business that isn't publicly traded, I would say. It means there's different phases of startups. So I'm not going to get too in-depth here, but it's really where it's a privately held company, which means it's not listed on the public stock exchange. None of the material to the startup is available to the public. And there's usually a very small group of people who identify and believe in a shared vision and want to bring it to the mainstream. So startups typically disrupt a very um, mundane and boring environment that lacks innovation. So startups will come and try to challenge what the status quo has been so whether that's in healthcare or in the finance market or in beauty there's a new idea that people rally behind in a privately held company and try to bring to a large group of people that's how i would identify a startup
0: and we have people who are behind the startup aka founders what do first-time founders like what kind of qualities do you think they should have
1: Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people, you know, it's funny because people also ask, like, how do you invest in startups or know which one's going to be good? And often we say it's the founder, which is like, how do you read the founder, right? Everyone's so different. But I think building a startup and to your point earlier has been so glamorized so much recently, like it is so hard. It is so incredibly hard. There are nights where you feel completely alone. You've risked some people put their mortgages, their houses up on a mortgage to be able to do this. You, you hear those stories on Shark Tank all the time. And I think we've glamorized what the founder journey is. But at the end of the day, it is extremely, extremely difficult. And a founder needs to be able to get through the muck and the toughness and the doubt and the hardship that really goes into building a startup. And that's something that I try to identify when I'm diligencing a founder of like, do they know really how hard this is, but do they also have a bit of naiveness to, to be able to do this because if they think they know everything or they're too ego driven, that's a bad sign. But if they also are scared or are fearful of it that's also not so great so it's finding that balance between people that like have this undenying idea that they're going to be successful that their idea will be successful but also are gr- grounded in the reality of how hard it's actually going to be.
0: I feel like sometimes as a founder, you have to have a little bit of that naivety because if you knew how hard it actually is going to be, you might give up even before you start because we all, you know, when you start a project, you, do, you can't even imagine how big that project might get. I was just listening to podcasts this morning with Mariana Hewitt and Lauren Gore. They have had Summer Fridays now for five years and they were saying how, like we had no idea that this company and he's going to become so big and I feel like a lot of people they just have this idea and they don't really have any a vision or a structure they just want to get something done and sometimes they don't have any money so let's talk about funding
1: mm-hmm.
0: let's say you have this amazing idea and you want to start a business but you don't have any of your own money what are your options
1: It's a very interesting question for you to ask me today versus if you had asked me even a year ago. I would say today we're not in a founder friendly market. Um, Money is not easily accessible. And so when previously you could raise money on an idea as a consumer brand, it is very rare to be able to do that today. I think obviously, you know, everything going on with the macroeconomic environment and, you know, banks failing, and, and there's a lot of unknowns, especially when you aren't a second time founder, when you have a second time founder, you have the connections and people when they're first betting on an idea are more so betting on the founder. Like we were saying, like the idea really is the concept. There's no proof of, there's no uh, product market fit. And it's really the idea investors are betting on a founder. So it's difficult. Like I I can't lie and say, oh yeah, you can just go out and raise money. My suggestion would be to build a community without a product necessarily yet, because what investors are looking for is some sort of signal that like you have traction. So whether that's if you're wanting to build something in the beauty space for hormonal acne, if you suffer for hormonal acne, start a TikTok, start a podcast, start a group every Friday that starts in your city and then translates from there. You need to show investors that, okay, yeah, I don't have a product yet. I don't have sales yet to show you, but I have a community. I have 5,000 emails, 50,000 emails. I have, you know, 10,000 podcast listeners every episode. That gives a signal to investors that they're not just betting on an idea. There's some sort of, you know, metric or data that they can hold on to to show like, Okay. Yeah. Once you have your product, you actually have people to sell to that you own, like you own those emails, you own the, the group meetup, the text messages. That is where I would start because I don't know, you know, how easy it is Well, I actually know it's not easy to raise money on an idea anymore as a first time founder for a consumer brand without at least a community to show who you're going to sell to.
0: So, so true, because when you create that community and you create that trust, they're going to buy whatever is a fit to your brand. So to your point, you're mentioning like, like an acne product. Like, for example, I don't suffer from acne. If I create a product that's like fighting acne, it's gonna be like, why are you coming up with this? You have nothing. Like this is not your forte. So what are you doing? It would seem a little bit fake.
1: Honestly, it's so great that you say that because so somebody I I think it's it's so interesting how the world has changed because there is so much more visibility. Where if you watch the Victoria's Secret documentary, I'm not sure if you did a few months ago when that came out. No, but I will. No, you you should watch it. It's so interesting. It's like and and no hate to this, but you know there's a white man and you know his his idea of building this company which secret and it's like now i don't think that would fly like a man that is has nothing to do with the space doesn't have the expertise just sees a market opportunity and is like oh we should build there there are still men like that and i think Of course, they should be able to see their ideas come to fruition, but they're putting other females on that also embody the characteristics of that community and are an amazing person to be like that head founder face. And so that's where I think it's amazing to see how much visibility has actually brought certain groups up to the mainstream that maybe would have been overlooked as a founder profile previously.
0: So let's say that you have this amazing idea and you have a big community behind Mm -hmm. you and you want to find investors. If you are so new to the business role, how do you even know where to start?
1: I think the first thing is like you just becoming extremely interested in the space and learning as much as you can. So the best way to meet an investor is definitely through an introduction. So you have to immerse yourself in the startup community first and foremost, to be able to even understand who the players are in the space. So... I think following the right, you know, podcasts, books, um, people on social media, the great thing about venture capitalists is that they are very active traditionally on platforms like Twitter and LinkedIn. I obviously am, you know, straddling the sign of being an angel investor raising SPV. So I went on a new platform, TikTok everyone is pretty open about what their investment thesis is. So you want to make sure that you're really integrating into the startup ecosystem that's specific to your industry. So, you know, there's no point in kind of getting familiar if you're building a consumer brand to understand like the enterprise SaaS investors or the biotech investors like they're never going to invest into your company um because their investment thesis is to go and find the next biotech companies or enterprise saas companies so mm-hmm. the first thing is really understanding who the players are in the industry that you're building in going on company or websites like crunchbase or pitchbook and finding out like okay who So for example, let's use Summer Fridays, you brought them up. If you wanted to go and see, I don't actually know if Summer Fridays has raised money, but if they have, you could go into Crunchbase, type up Summer Fridays, and then you could see a list of their investors that have actually invested into Summer Fridays. So what I would do is I would then go, search up those venture funds, find their partners, follow them on Twitter, start understanding what they're talking about, what they care about. They very freely put their ideas out into the world. And if you don't have any connections and you feel like you have a business that's ready to go and fundraise, then just be very thoughtful about what your cold email would be. So once you've done your research, find a commonality. If you saw one of the lead partners talking about, you know, their love of Hawaii, you know, say if your product is a sunscreen product, like, oh, well, you know, our product is 100% reef safe for your favorite holiday in Hawaii. That little piece of research and like connection build rapport with an investor and i think it's like sales 101 you know you want to find a commonality between people so that they can latch onto that and feel inclined to respond because investors are getting like even though for myself not being even being at a venture fund i get like 10 to 50 pitches a day so wow. you can't respond to everybody And the only people I respond to that are cold are the people that show me they put the time in, they know who I am specifically, you know, they actually did the work and they're willing to go that one step further. That to me is worthy if I can and the business is a fit to respond.
0: I absolutely agree with that. And I see even when a lot of people pitch me to be on my podcast, and if they misspell my name or they, they they don't, like they're writing a pitch that you can feel that it's a completely cold pitch. They just send it to a thousand people. I'm like, I don't even want to talk to you because I know you don't want to talk to me. Yes. You just want to be out there. So yes. You, I love the personalized approach. And I love those, those like specific examples, because I feel like a lot of girls who are going to be listening to this episode, maybe they don't even, know what the startup world is about, but maybe they hear their boyfriend talking about it, their friends. And sometimes they just feel a little bit embarrassed to even ask questions because they don't want to seem, you know, quote unquote, dumb. Yeah. But then like, if you never ask questions, you're never going to get any answers. So I'm going to ask you some very basic questions. So when it comes to raising money, so we have angel investors, VCs, private equity, what is the difference between all of them?
1: So venture capital is a subset of private equity. And what that means is it's like, it's really private market securities. So like I was saying, they're not publicly traded companies, Um, but there's a lot of other players that have entered. So we have things like angel investors, which you've talked about, you know, even talent. Talent has become a huge source of capital for um, potential brand founders. We have micro and nano nano VCs. So I can kind of explain the difference, but the main one is that if individuals are investing on behalf of their own money those are typically angel investors so they are not investing on behalf of other people's money and that's really the difference with venture capitalists and with private equity is that they are investing on behalf of other people's money and in return they get a two percent management fee of their AUM so assets under management and then a 20 percent carry Once there's a liquidity event and initial capital is returned back to their LPs, limited partners. So that's really the biggest difference. I think the exciting thing is that angel investors used to be, you know, super high net worth individuals, founders that had already sold their company for $500 million, but now it's really being democratized with. People that are, you know, young professional that are an accredited investor, which the SEC defines as somebody earning over $200,000 or with a net worth of over a million. So yes, it's not accessible to everybody in that way, but we can get into crowdfunding later. The word angel investor is now shifting and there's more of them. And there's more people that are understanding why are high net worth individuals investing into this risky asset class? And yes, you know there it, it is extremely risky. Most startups will fail, but when you get those unicorns or you get those, you know, uh, those like special circumstances, it's a huge payout. So there's high risk, high reward, and it's no longer being left to the billionaires, to the high net worth individuals, to the people that have sold businesses. And I think, especially with the evolution of crowdfunding, it's going to become even more democratized. Um, would love to talk about that later because I think it's a super exciting aspect of the private market um, investment industry. Let's talk about crowdfunding. How would you define that? Yeah, so crowdfunding has changed a lot significantly over the past few years because I think what's so interesting is we were very used to things like GoFundMe or Kickstarter Indiegogo, right? And people are very familiar with the idea of like buying a product before it's made on Indiegogo or Kickstarter and then waiting sometimes up to a year to actually get that product. And that's how I like to like explain crowdfunding in the way where non-accredited investors So people that don't fall under those SEC regulations, everyday people can invest a certain amount of their income a year into privately held securities or privately held companies. And it's a way to really further democratize access to these incredible opportunities. And there's a lot of other opportunities or benefits to being an investor, like the network effects and the career experience that you get in in different industries. And so crowdfunding has recently changed to allow for these non-accredited investors to take part in private market security offerings. And actually one of the best campaigns I've seen recently that can help explain this really well is there is a platform called Substack, which has basically allowed individual writers or editors to have their own publication online and then further monetize that. So, you know, everyone can have their own what newsletter and be able to monetize that and become their own writer or editor. And they've been around since 2017. They're, you know, backed by Y Combinator and A16Z. And they recently completed their Series B fundraise um, and actually allocated as a part of that $5 million um, to crowdfunding. And the reason for that was that they wanted their community to take part in the financial upside and the ownership benefits to being a part of the Substack equity owners. And the coolest part for me is that they really were prioritizing the writers and their paying subscribers as a part of Substack to be able to get, uh, an opportunity to invest in this round. So, uh, based on regulation, crowdfunding law, you're only able to take $5 million um, of of that security. And they oversubscribed within, I think a few days of like $6.5 million. And they were saying how they're going to figure out who actually is going to get, um, into the round is the, like I said, the writers and the paying subscribers, because they want their community Financially motivated and incentivized as an owner to get to that next scale and have their community feel like they're a part of it, which I think is just such a great example of the power of of raising money from your community.
0: It all boils
1: down to community. It seems like (laughs) a hundred percent. It's such a buzzword, and that's one of the hardest things when you know you don't actually care about your community. Like you see the brands that are using it, and it's like, okay, you don't really have a community. You don't. You may say you do, but your actions say otherwise. And I think that there's those, you know, brands or those companies where you're like, oh, wow, like you really have a community and you really care about them and you're actually prioritizing them. I would love to talk about
0: equity. And I feel like that happens a lot with super young founders when they, in the very beginning, they're just hungry for that check. And they just want somebody to give them a little bit of money and they're ready to give their investor, I don't know, 50% of their company. And then later on the company's huge. And then other investors and then they
1: ended up being like completely bought out or you know, I, I've, I've heard a lot. So. so great, great point. And it happens more than you'd think. And so this is actually something that I have started being outspoken about, but um, it kind of goes against what a lot of people say. So we'll see how it lands. We um, have a controversial. Yeah. And, and best friend? <laughs> okay, good. Um, so a lot of investors say things like valuations don't matter. And Unfortunately, in early stage startups, valuations are, there's no set formula. So there's a bunch of inputs that you can look to, to help you decide what a valuation is. And for people listening that don't know what that is, it's essentially what you and your investor agree that your startup is worth at the moment that you're raising capital and your valuation is lower when you haven't hit certain milestones. So if you're at the idea stage, you're gonna have a super low valuation compared to when you're sold in Ulta and Target and Walmart, you're divert, you're, uh, you're not as risky of a bet for an investor, which means that you can increase your valuation. I don't like when investors say things like, oh, your valuations don't matter and it's a made up number. And yes, it is a made up number, but it actually significantly matters because your valuation determines how much ownership the founder will be left with. So to your point, the problem is that when you're a first time founder and you don't understand valuations and you get an offer from an investor uh, at the beginning, you can end up selling way too much of your company away and you don't understand why. And it's like, just because you didn't understand your valuation. And so I think the best way I explained this last week at a a summit I was at speaking about valuations, where if you think about the easiest way to figure out your valuation is think about the housing market when you're looking to Sell or buy a home. You know, you have a four bedroom house. It has a pool. It's about X amount of square feet. You know, it was renovated at this time to find the value of what you should price it at or buy it at. Your real estate agent will pull something called like comps, which is like in your area, same square footage, same amount of bedroom, same renovation timeline. And it will give you a gut sense of like what your house should be valued at. The same is true with startups. So if you operate a pet food company and, you know, you can go and find compositions and similarly um, stage of company, uh, where, how much they raised at what valuation that gives you a good, just gut check of like in the industry, what should you be pricing your multiple at? And then taking into consideration your specific factors, like your net top line revenue, if you have that already, you know, your team, your background, your expertise, but i think the comp market is a good place for people to understand like what multiple does beauty trade at? what does alcohol trade at? what does pet food trade at? because they're very specific based on the industry that you're actually operating in and it's something you should be very clear about before you go into a fundraise and take money from an investor because god forbid to your point, there are a lot of situations where after year four or five, you're like, I only own 15% of this company. Like this is not worth it for me to be working with a minimal salary for what upside? I'm so happy you mentioned salary because
0: I feel like we need to uh, point out that a lot of founders, they don't pay themselves in the very beginning. They're reinvesting every single dollar back into the company and again the startup world is so glamorized and people think like "Oh, i'll just start this company and then i'm just gonna make all this money and i'll just be super famous and what you said that evaluations don't matter it's like saying that you know your follower count doesn't matter unfortunately it does that's the world we live in today let's talk about founders who as you just mentioned maybe you already have a running business you're making money things are going great but at what point do you decide that you want to take outside money? To kind of, you know, scale it up.
1: The longer you can go without raising money and still growing, that's always my suggestion. When you can't grow your company without external capital. So you have all these amazing opportunities. There's so much going on, like things are going great. And you're like, I don't think I can serve you know, a new market. So let's say you you own like a you know, I actually had this this consultation call yesterday, this amazing celebrity facialist has, you know, two locations in two different cities, but there's like a ton of demand and interest for her in Miami, in Dallas, in Austin. And, you know, she's like, well, I I don't really know how I can grow to those cities, you know, get another house, get a new staff training equipment without raising money that's a great time for her to go and raise for her company because she has these opportunities. She knows exactly what she's going to go and do with the money. Another problem or a mistake that I see is that founders think they should just go out and raise money because they need money to grow a company. But it's like, to do what? What are you going to do with that money? How? Like I will never write a check to a founder if they're like, I'm raising a million dollars. Okay, for what? And they don't know what they're raising money for. It's like, well, why would I trust you with my money when you don't even have a plan? So the way I describe that to people is like in a hiring rule. when I worked in corporate, it's like you put a 60, 30, 90 or 30, 60, 90 day plan together for your employer. And typically when you're hired, that's actually the plan that you go and execute, right? So your employer has a great idea of like what you're going to do when you get hired in this it's the same thing like when you're raising money you should have a literally a buttoned up plan of like these are the people we're going to hire these are the locations if you're a retail business these are the categories we're going to launch this is the you know the infrastructure i'm looking to bring on i just need you to write me a check because you have a plan i just i think we've gotten into this world of like venture capital has become there is so much money available and you know it was like the thing to do was like start a company raise money and so but But people didn't really know what they were raising money for. You should have your five-year vision in your head and then work backwards. Like, what am I going to do every single year in order to get there and only raise the amount of money that you need to get there? I love what you said. Uh, You're raising money for what? (laughs) No, seriously.
0: Like A lot of people just have this idea of like, I want to be successful. I want to be rich. What does that mean to you? What does success actually mean to you? Like, if there is a
1: real need that you're serving... I think, yeah, start a company. But if you're just starting something to build like a brand that because of, you know, those egotistical reasons, like letting your ego drive your decision making, I think that's becoming less accessible to raise money from i think you really need and i talk about this a lot like something called what i call like defensible ip something that actually has a competitive advantage that's defensible against competitors whether that's like a patented product or a specific formula but taking it a step further is like it should be a really big need that isn't currently being served i think we've seen so many companies built off of a feature or a function instead of a platform And we need to get back to like, you have a bigger vision than a one product company. Like if you have a one product idea, we need to figure out a solution for you to be able to be like an entrepreneur, entrepreneur in residence somewhere. Like that should be a a focus for big, big corporations, but we don't need every single person's one idea to be a company, to put more shit back into this earth that is ultimately like really killing off our natural resources you mentioned IPO would you say that every founder that's like their main goal so again controversial opinion like I come from an environment where like we were building a forever brand and like we were going to be the next Nike and like do you know how hard that is to do especially in today's world like it's not impossible and it's done There's brands that have done it that have done it incredibly well, like Missouri, you know, like democratizing, like women buying jewelry for themselves. That was like really the first, you know, jewelry company that did that. I would say they're building a forever brand, right? They're like the new people's jewelers to me. But I don't think people understand how hard it is to build a
0: forever brand. As I mentioned, I listened to this podcast this morning with Mariana and Lauren, and they started their company with only one product. And they mentioned that they were advised against it, that you should have multiple products when you're at least starting a brand. Because what if, what if this one hero product fails? So
1: I actually think exactly the same as Mariana and Lauren. So I recommend always, like I've posted about this on my TikTok a lot, like when Ashley Tellsdale launched her brand and it had like 40 products or something to launch. I just thought to myself, my God, what a nightmare starface same thing they launch with one product i actually recommend people launch with one thing because oh, okay so i
0: misunderstood you before i thought you said don't just start with one product okay.
1: i think i think one thing is actually great when you're first launching it's all about finding like product market fit that's what you call it and you have something like an mvp a minimum viable product
0: let's let's stay here for a second let's say you want to you want to check your product market fit how would you even do that
1: there's a few things before you actually go and like invest resources and in building the actual thing. So you can do things like focus groups. You can get a really good sense of like audience interest. So I think there's ways you can assess it and you're not going to know a hundred percent until somebody puts their credit card down and buys your product. That's not your family and friends. But I think when you only have one product, God forbid you got something wrong. Imagine if you had a lineup of 15 products and nobody's been any with your brand, people hated your slogan. They didn't like the taste of something or the feeling of your skincare or whatever. You now have to go and change 15 things. Like this is a nightmare and it happens more than you'd think. And I think if you have that one product, even if you haven't found product market fit, you haven't had to buy minimum orders or MOQs of like, you know, 15 SKUs of every single one having a minimum order that you have to purchase. Mm -hmm. You don't have to redo packaging for 15 brands. So you're able to really go and start to service your community. And, you know, Lauren and Mariana had a community before. They knew that they traveled all the time. It was something very unique to them. So the jet lag mask, which I'm bringing today to Vegas, um, (laughs) like it's already It apparently sells
0: every two minutes. They sell one jet lag mask. I am obsessed with it.
1: And they did it in a way that was like very authentic and easy to switch if they had missed something. Same with Starface. They only started putting things out once they knew that they had a fit with their community. So I always recommend like launch with one, see how it goes and then iterate and continue to reinvest. And it does not have to be perfect. Another thing I see a mistake. So if you're listening and you're starting a brand, like don't spend $20,000, like investing in a brand design, like just get something out the door. It doesn't have to be perfect. And then redo your brand in a similar vein, but with the resources when you actually have the money to do that.
0: I, I love that you just said that but because my next question was about branding and how important you think today is to actually have a solid product that actually is making a difference versus the brand identity or like the feeling or, you know, the experience that sometimes even I feel like people lean more toward like liquid death, even like it's, it's just so different. So sometimes people are going to buy that water instead of that one, because it just, it's just cool.
1: So great point because until you brought up liquid death i was going to say something different but i think that's the thing with business is there's no formula there's no right answer liquid death does it have exceptionally better water no but they're not building a water company they're building an entertainment company and their whole idea was to build the next version of red bull which used content as their platform to like fuel their product um but i would say unless you're going to go the extreme route of that The more common and like the gut answer I was going to give you is product efficacy is more important than having a great brand. Do I think you need both? Absolutely. But I don't think that it's enough anymore to launch a mediocre blush company or skincare brand with an amazing brand and be able to have a sustainable company. And you have customers that are really smart now. They're like, everybody has a mini microphone. So They're mm-hmm. so smart. They're ripping through ingredients. They're challenging everything. And maybe that's a good thing. And, you know, sometimes it's hard because it's like, damn, like you can't catch a break. (laughs) There's all these haters on the internet now. But at the same time, it keeps people a lot more honest to put things out. Like I was saying that are just conscious decisions, conscious products, conscious brands, conscious things that actually work and isn't a shield or a mask of just fluff. And I think that's a lot of what we saw with these, these other brands that were getting fueled with so much venture capital money with a great brand. It's like, it's not hard to find a creative director that can put something amazing and beautiful down, but it's really hard to build a great product and brand.
0: You're so smart, Maggie. (laughs) I'm sure you know that. Okay. uh, I was about to say my final question, but it's actually not a final question because I wanted you to tell me top five mistakes you see with first time founders.
1: I think I've said like a few on here, but I want to reiterate them because they're so important is like raising too much money too quickly at too high of a valuation. That's like, honestly, uh, I think a very old school way of doing things. I've been a part of really incredibly high growth startups. And as soon as you raise too much money too quickly at too high of a valuation, what happens is you have investors that are now breathing down founders necks, being like, you promised me you were going to grow at this scale. You were going to exit at this. And you, I promised my investor. remember I was explaining like to the mm-hmm. LPs that you were going to do this. And now you're not fulfilling on your promise and I'm not fulfilling on my promise. And what that does is it creates a really toxic, negative work environment for the startup because founders are now breathing down their employees next. And I'm just so sick of like, that culture like I just I don't believe it has to be that way. I think it's like so avoidable. And so I think if you understand the entire that's why I think I make a good investor. I like to say that to myself is like, I've been an early stage operator. So I wasn't the founder, but I was in leadership roles and was on the receiving end of that stress and that fire. And it wasn't fun. And ultimately a startup is a people business. And when you do that long enough, your great people end up leaving and you can't build something great without great people. That's the biggest thing I see that upsets me on a personal and a professional level. Um, because I think too many bad, people have led companies with great people. And then the idea never gets to the mainstream because of proper or because of a lack of management. That's the biggest thing for sure. I'm obviously very passionate about that one. No, um, I love it. I, I, I felt it. I felt yeah. it. <laughs> um, I think the second thing that I see is like stopping your creativity from flowing because of the way things have been done. So a lot of the time, you know, people are really surprised at how I've built this brand on TikTok, right? And it's like, so not the way that like traditional investors have done things on like Twitter and LinkedIn and going into a A venture fund. And I think it's just because I've always thought about creative ways to like stand out or not have to follow the status quo while still respecting the traditions of the industry or like the players in it. Like I'm very respectful to the big boys in the industry, but not being afraid to think creatively and like thinking about how it could be done differently. I think a lot of founders just do the same thing and expect the same results, but it's not gonna work over and over and over again. So it's like taking the playbook of what works and then thinking really creatively about how to apply that to your certain situation a huge tactical thing that people do is I see so many founders spend forever building their product. And then once they've invested all this time, all this money into building their product, they are the opposite of the brand people and actually have no clue how they're going to market it. Like they have, what
0: do you mean opposite of the
1: brand people? So people that spend like we were talking about so much time building this amazing brand with like creative direction and like this and that And then they don't actually have a product that is efficacious and that works. The opposite can be true where you have these amazing product founders that are like in the weeds, in the trenches, building this amazing product and then get to market launch and have no go-to market plan, no budget for marketing, don't have a community, don't know how they're going to reach them. And their idea, it's like they have the best idea. How are they ever going to get it out to people to even know about it? So I think it's finding that balance between like building an amazing product and then also building marketing and community at the same time. It's really important to have both. On the flip side of giving away equity, I think some founders are very protective over equity in like a really non-help, not helpful way. So for example, if you're trying to raise money and you have no connections to the startup world, put an advisory board together like find industry experts in your industry that you're going to offer equity in exchange for help expertise, connections, network. And I find like founders are really like, well, it's my equity. And like, they, like, I don't want to give it away. And it's like, you don't have, you don't have a company that's worth anything yet though. So wouldn't you rather have like less of something than a ton of nothing. And so I think again, it's finding that balance of like, How can you give equity to people that are going to make a difference, integrate you into the community, into the ecosystem, and not be so precious about your equity to have 100% of nothing if nothing actually ends up getting anywhere? And then the last thing I would say that's easy for me to rattle off is just like not being a hundred percent focus like i personally don't invest into founders that it's like their part-time thing or like it's something that they're doing on the side or it's a passion project like why would i give you my money or invest on behalf of other people's money if you aren't a hundred percent in it too and if you don't have the capital for it that's one thing but then don't ask to put somebody's capital at risk when like you haven't even proved that you're willing to go all in on it yet yourself. Okay. One final question, because yeah. you
0: just opened my my mind about something. You mentioned what if somebody is doing this as a part-time thing, but what if somebody has a full-time job because maybe they can't afford not to have a full-time job, but they want to start a business? How can they make that transition? I usually say that like, if you have a nine to five job, quit that nine to five job. If that's not giving you any value, go work at a restaurant at night. You're going to make a lot more money and you're going to have a lot of free time throughout the day. I worked in restaurants, my entire twenties, and it was like, I made a lot of money. And throughout the day I was working on my makeup, makeup artist career. So what's your opinion on, you know, you have to have a steady income, but also you want to work on your dreams.
1: Yeah. I think it's super situational, but I, would say then you just shouldn't raise money if you're still working a nine to five. It's like really, it creates a lot of issues, like even with your employer, like if they found out that you were building a side hustle and like even raising money for it, depending on your job, that could be like a huge issue. I think it's totally fine. I mean, don't just quit your job and like go all in on your idea with like no idea how you're going to pay your bills, especially in this environment. There's a lot of stuff that you can be doing while you're still employed. But when you are ready to take the risk of fundraising, like, you know, one thing people think when they become an entrepreneur, when you start raising money, yes, you're an entrepreneur, but you now have a boss and that boss is your investors. Mm -hmm. And so you can't expect to raise money and still be working for somebody else because now you actually have two bosses. It's about validating your idea, getting as close as you can. If you can't do it, self-financing it with the money from your nine to five, then at the point where you have to go and raise money, you need to start thinking about quitting your job.
0: Maggie, I can speak to you for a few more hours, but I know (laughs) you have a trip to Vegas this uh, (laughs) this afternoon. Uh, So thank you for all of this, this is amazing, and I would love everybody to follow you. So, please share your socials and
1: everywhere else where people can yeah. find you. So, the one thing I wanted to say that it's actually super exciting is I'm actually working by the time this comes out, I think the course will actually be live, but I'm actually putting together a course first hand experience of how, like, the companies I've invested into. I have my sister who's the VP of finance at Missouri. Finally, I mentioned that wow. um, she's doing a bunch of the financial statement section, and it's really a course for founders to understand the entire, I, like, from concept to completion, their first fundraise from like, once you decide you want to fundraise, understanding the players, understanding how to set up your books, how you should do your pitch deck, how you should run your process. It's been like a labor of love to put together because I think you know, like your listeners, there's just no clarity on it, and there's no guide, there's no YC for consumer brands. Just go to right now my social media because it will definitely be there. Mm-hmm. Link. We're still figuring out if we're gonna put it onto um, my website or if it's just gonna be on like a creator storefront. So mm-hmm. um, TBD on that. But go to my socials, which is Maggie Sellers on Instagram, and then Maggie Sellers underscore on TikTok.
0: Amazing. Well, Maggie, thank you again for sharing your knowledge. It was a pleasure to have you here.
1: Of course. Thanks, Coco. This was so much
0: fun. I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I'll see you next week.